You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. That something is wrong with higher education in North America is indisputable by now. What exactly is wrong is more up for debate. The last decade has given us an awful lot of hand-wringing on the subject. Books like Andrew Del Banco's College, What It Was, Is, and Should Be, and Mark Taylor's Crisis on Campus have prompted a lot of anxiety and discussions among college professors and society at large. Our guests today on Christian Humanist Profiles, Jack Baker and Jeffrey Bilbrow, have given us an important and eloquent elucidation of what they see as the central issues with higher education in the 21st century, and a few suggestions of how we can get our colleges and universities back on track. They're both English professors at Spring Arbor University, and their book, Wendell Berry and Higher Education, Cultivating Virtues of Place, is out now from the University of Kentucky Press. I'm glad it's brought them on Christian Humanist Profiles today. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having us. I'm always interested in books with two authors because I can't get my head around how they work. So I'd like to start by asking you to talk about how this book came about and what the process of writing it was like. Well, Jack and I are no longer on speaking terms, so... uh, (laughs) It's going to make the interview awkward. Yeah, we're in separate locations right now, actually. Um, Well, I, I got a job here at Spring Arbor about five years ago, I guess, and... Jack was already here, um, and so during the interview process, we discussed our mutual admiration for Wendell Berry, uh, and it's probably kind of unusual to have uh, two out of the five members of a department uh, studying Berry, but it works out because I'm an Americanist and Jack's uh, a medievalist. But I think that summer we started exchanging emails about potential collaborative projects, and this topic bubbled to the surface as one that we both were passionate about and uh and we thought barry had a lot of important things to say yeah we um we hit it off a little before uh jeff applied for this job via the christianity and literature listserv right and uh and 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 i'm not sure what it was about i think it was about something related to barry and pedagogy and so when uh when he applied i was very excited and and yeah it's not often you get to have two barry scholars in the in the same department and so it's kind of a a no-brainer for us to work on something together we didn't know i don't think we knew at first what we wanted to do but it pretty quickly solidified did you each write chapters or did you collaborate within chapters yeah we we did a lot of drafting together and outlined the whole project uh over a summer we applied for some for some funding here at the university and the the process of going through those applications helped us uh, kind of outline the project, and then we would we would uh, work on each chapter together, outlining it, and often kind of take the lead on certain sections. But I think every chapter has chunks that we each, you know, uh, drafted. Although at this point, to be honest, I couldn't tell you which parts. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was it was funny because we. Um, well, if you know anything about Jeff, you you know that he's a prolific writer, and so he uh, he's very disciplined, and I'm I'm terribly jealous of him for that. But uh, he um, he's able to sort of stick with a project and think through the whole thing, and and so working together with him on that, sitting down, we spent a lot of time in an office and and in a library on campus in White Library, sitting and 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 writing at sometimes sentence level, writing together out loud, one of us typing editing as we went and um 
it got to the point where I think our voice in, in writing was, was pretty similar. Yeah. I, I'm amazed at this. I just, I can't, I can't fathom writing a book out loud like that with another person. It was a paragraph maybe here and there. <laughs> well, we couldn't have done the whole thing that way, but no, they, I mean, it was a really, actually, I think in terms of our own pedagogy and, and talking to students about the process of writing, for me, this was a first and I, I enjoyed the process and it was a process of accountability too, because, um, you know, if we did assign, Hey, you do this section, I'm going to do this one. We'd put a date on when we needed to come back together and, and then talk about how those were going to coalesce. Yeah. I guess it would keep you working on it. It would be harder to abandon it. Yeah. And, and I think the fact that we had both been reading Barry a long time helped because, um, our sort of writing voice, I guess, was formed, uh, in apprenticeship to him. So that, that probably shaped us, shaped our voices in ways that hopefully makes it read in a unified style. I think it absolutely does. I mean, I, I've, I've never read you before, Jack. I've, I've read Jeff's previous book and I, I certainly couldn't tell when one of you was writing and when the other wasn't. Uh, good. We tricked you. There you go. In the opening chapter of the book, you point out that higher ed, as it's currently practiced, has this whole nexus of problems. That's a Gordian knot that probably won't be easy to untie, but how would you characterize the biggest problem our universities are struggling with? I mean, the, uh, the, the contrast we use in the introduction between boomers and stickers uh, which are which are terms that Barry gets uh, from his teacher Wallace Stegner. That's that's kind of the way we try to frame it. Um, but you're right that that contrast plays out in a lot of contexts, I guess. So we talk about um, both uh, professors and students who are themselves boomers, and maybe I should define those terms. Uh, that would be good. Yeah. So Barry says that boomers are people who are motivated by a desire for profit and um, are willing to extract the resources from whatever place they happen to be in uh, for their own gain and then move on. And stickers, uh, in contrast, are those people who um, tend to the health of their places and communities, I guess. So so their universities are damaged um, in large part because uh, – for a lot of reasons, professors have tended to be boomers, uh, migrants who are seeking to um, burnish their CVs and move on to more prestigious gigs. Um, but then also the kinds of knowledge that are often practiced at universities are forms of knowledge that serve boomer interests. Uh, so they're kind of sort of techniques of extraction, whether it be professional skills that help people gain lucrative careers or, um, you know, just kinds of knowledge that help people get what they want and, and benefit their lives rather than framing the, the, the things that we're learning as uh, knowledge you can use to serve your place. I think the, um, of course, I agree with every everything Jeff said. Uh, but I, I think one of the, one of the storms that has been brewing and that I see, um, getting stronger and stronger is the, the financial burden that students have at the end of their time at, at a university. 
and I think that's in part because universities have become like uh, educational resorts. It's it's about the the accoutrements. It's about the experience. It in many ways becomes less and less about the education you get, and it's certainly almost never about the place in which that university is situated. It's more of, it's more about what you can go and you can get from that place, and and then leave and do the the things you want to do that will bring you hopefully enough money to pay off all of those loans you've taken out to um, to go to that place. And and so in that way, I think it, it feeds into that cycle of seeing universities as um, as floating islands that that don't uh, have a a place uh, in which they're situated. Uh, so we're in a small rural community, and I think it's a distinctive of our institution that we have a university in a in a small uh, you know former farming community in South Central Michigan and and I think because we don't address we don't think about universities as being in a place there are financial implications and I think there are implications to the communities around them I was going to ask you about Spring Arbor about which I don't know very much at all uh, what percentage of your students come from a hundred miles of the campus. I would say eighty percent are from Michigan. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's that's accurate. And, and probably most of the rest are from uh, Indiana, Ohio, that neck of the woods. So we're certainly largely regional. Although, like a lot of universities, um, certain certain segments of our university are trying to uh, grow into the online arena. Sure. Yeah. We should we should probably complain about online education at some yeah. point. Definitely. I mean, it sounds the the demographics there are very similar to here at Crown College where I teach, and uh, and I, I just I just wonder if you're if you're having the same motion with athletics as we are, which is that most of our students historically have been from I, I think it's five states around here that all get in-state tuition in Minnesota schools. So Wisconsin, Iowa, the Dakotas and Minnesota, I think those are the five, but increasingly we are, we're hunting athletes from the, from the Southeast and the Southwest. And I, I, I wonder what that does in terms of the, the boomer sticker uh, dichotomy that you set up here. Well, I'm not sure if I'm asking a question or not. Yeah. I think, I think you're framing the problem uh, that Jack was outlining further uh, by, by naming athletics as another thing that students come to universities for, uh, rather than an education in how to be contributing members of their places, they come, uh, you know, to have a continuation of their high school athletic experience. I don't know. Yeah, I think the so all the almost all of the language you see in marketing for institutions like ours are, are connected to value. And it's always a sort of financial values. So we we tout this uh, ranking we get from The Economist. And I'm not sure if anybody cares about The Economist. I'm certain 18-year-olds don't care about what The Economist says. But <laughs> we're ranked the, the, the number one best value in the Midwest with – you know, like they add all these modifiers so you can be number one in something. And, uh, and hey, congratulations, and, though. Yes, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, I'm, hopefully, we're going to get a certificate soon um, for our walls. But you know, at, at the heart of that, it you know, value comes at an expense. You know, something is something is lost to offer that that value to you. And when the the proposition of attending a place is based solely on the financial benefit to you as an individual, 
I think that feeds into that boomer mentality that that universities, like any other consumer product, are a thing you should get at a good deal. And and it doesn't really matter where you get that thing. You can buy it from Amazon.com or you could buy it at the local store. You just want the best deal. And I think we've we've put that model onto higher education. I don't think it's anything that's happened, you know, just recently. But uh, um, that's something I think we we fight against and struggle with as an institution in a rural community. And you know, what is not considered probably the greatest. 25 miles in Michigan, you know, uh, so we have to try to attract students somehow and we do it by, by value. And, um, and we do a lot of great things. That's not to undermine what, what we do here, but I think that's a real struggle. And now we've got a bowling team and, uh, and I guess our, our contention is maybe that the university should be valuing other things and, uh, other trying to cultivate in students, other sources of value rather than just, Hey, you can make, uh, you can give us less money and expect more money in your career than other schools. You know, we just think that's kind of a shallow way of measuring the value of an education. Oh, especially given what the job market's going to look like in five years. Right. Yeah. Right. That seems that seems foolish. I, I also want before we before we move on, I want to give you guys a chance to and and me also to say that uh, athletics doesn't have to be necessarily be boomer mentality right so even if you think about how high school athletics work where i'm from in the south i think there's a real commitment to community in in how that works if you if you look at places where high school football reigns supreme there are problems with that but i'm not sure those problems are boomer problems necessarily right no i went to grad school with baylor and um i think baylor uh university exhibits a lot of the problems with athletics uh, so I, I'm not going to hold them up with the model. I was, that was a big problem there. But uh, I got a chance to attend high school football games there and uh, in the surrounding community. And every everyone I went to, I thought, this is crazy. But this is where town life happens. So I had, being from Washington, I had no idea what Friday nights was like in Texas. And I grew up in, I grew up in a small rural community on the west side of the state where the athletic events were what, you know, Friday night football. It wasn't quite Texas Friday Night Lights, but it was uh, it was a big deal. But it was also, as you said, it was very much a communal experience. And it's some of my best memories growing up are in anticipation of going to those games on on Friday nights. Um, and I, I, you know, I think the university has an opportunity to do that um, to do that as well. I, I think it just reaches beyond uh, athletics. I think there are other ways you can recruit students and form community that are that are beyond having. Like, I mean, like, what percentage of it of our students now are? I'm not going to be a, th- a third or quarter. Yeah, it's, I mean, going it's, it's going up. Oh, is that all? We're we're at I think 56 to 60 percent. Well, we're we're trying to match you. Yeah, we're, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's it's weird because it's it seems like sports could be a force for this, and yet so much about sports in our society is about disconnecting from the local. It, it's yeah. so much about being a star and and these these huge multinational corporations that really control our attitudes towards sports yeah it's a it's a very sad irony that sports have been colonized just like many other aspects of of local life well if i had to pick one word to say what your book is about i think i'd probably pick place or less sonorously locality 
why is the local so important to you and to Barry? And why do our universities do such a lousy job engaging with it? I think you, there, you know, there's a, a great line in one of the later chapters in Jaber Pro where, where uh, Jaber says you, you can't have something along the lines of you can't have much hope of, of, of um, being part of a place if you don't have any intention of staying there. And I think that the sorts of changes that need to happen in higher education require people who are going to be committed to a place in a locality, even though it may not be the posh job on the coasts that uh, affords you a great deal of notoriety in your field, um, but maybe has the opportunity for you to be invested in, in, in life beyond the university, in the community, in the church community, in the school system. And, and that's one of the things I've actually really enjoyed in the seven years we've been here is being known at the school that my children attend and, and being a, a part of that school system, being involved in the church and the community. And, and that makes decisions at the institution, at the university, um, it, it makes them directly, you have to think, how is this going to affect the people who aren't connected to the university, but are connected to the community? And, and I think that we need more, we need more of that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's great when our students come from this town or we go to church with our students and that, that happens here. And that's kind of, um, a good reminder that you have to live with your students or you should be thinking about, uh, what kind of people they're going to be because they might be your neighbors. <laughs> but, but to go on, uh, expand on what Jack said, I would say also we try to define place following Barry, uh, but define place in ways that aren't just geographical. So I think that makes place a rich enough concept to uh, root the university in. So, you know, we talk about place as um, uh, your place in time. So we talk about tradition, being placed in tradition, uh, your place in the hierarchy. Um, so I guess that's the, the more religious dimension. Um, and then your place in your community, and then also your place in your geographic place. So I think defining it according to those kind of four dimensions um, makes place a rich enough concept to, to govern and guide a vision of education. Are we ultimately just talking about the difference between specificity and abstraction here? I mean, I've been reading Gabriel Marcel, so I could be reading that into you, but are, are we just talking about being committed to something specific as opposed to abstract principles or to yourself? I think that's part of it. Um, although, and we talk about this some, I think, in the fidelity chapter, that we're not suggesting that all, I mean, Barry says abstraction is the enemy wherever it is found. But of course, Barry makes abstractions. You can't talk about, you know, uh, using abstraction in generalities. So I think we talk about kind of the dance between the particular and the general or the local and the, the more abstract. I mean, uh, one example maybe that will put some heat on this is uh, some people have asked us, because we teach at a university where all of our students go on cross-cultural trips. Um, that's one of their requirements. And, and so we talk about that that can be a really good experience for students. Um, leaving your home and experiencing uh, culture in other places is, is a good thing uh, if you take what you learn elsewhere, elsewhere and bring it home uh, rather than just being a tourist. So I think this, the same kind of idea applies to the general generalities or abstractions. If you can learn these abstract principles and then apply them locally, uh, that's what you should be doing. 
but you shouldn't stay in in generality or an abstraction. And we're we're pretty well aware that our students are not going to end up in Spring Arbor, Michigan. So some of our students actually do because they they fall in love with community and and they want to stay, but we see the work we do here not as trying to convert students to stay in this area, but to commit to whatever place they find themselves in. And so this isn't an argument, you know, we don't make an argument in the book that that you need to go back to your hometown and you need to go there, even though it's falling apart, even though it can't sustain uh, your life or your career. Instead, we're saying, you know, you need to practice the virtues of, of, of place while you're in this community so that when you go from here, you'll know how to put down roots. You'll know how to practice those those sort of daily virtues required of you to want to stay in a place, even if, you know, it, it, it doesn't live up to the dreams maybe you had. Well, I'm glad you said that because I, I was... I was wondering that how much how much do you expect me to tell my students to return to their hometowns, which oftentimes they're very dissatisfied with. Yeah, and I and I don't think we are saying that. Although I would encourage students to at least consider it. You know, a lot of students would see that as like a a mark of failure, and so I would want to challenge that. But neither Jack nor I, I live in our hometowns. Uh, it's pretty hard to do that as a university professor. So it would be kind of hypocritical of us to. Uh, tell our students you have to go home. But Barry likes to quote Gary Snyder who says, uh, you know, who's kind of a famous uh, one for going far field, um, but who's also put down roots. You know, you can, he said, so Snyder says, uh, you can stop someplace. And I think that's what we would challenge our students to do. It, it works really well to ask students this in the, in the classroom to ask them why it is they are so opposed to returning home, or maybe a different question, what is it that you think about your friends who didn't go to college but stayed home? And uh, I think, you know, we all know what we think about those people, at least initially, is we, we think that somehow they've failed. And then we sort of, you know, we, we quote an article from The Onion, um, maybe the, the first uh, university press book in recent years to do so, but uh, it's a, you know, it's a, a great article because it, it, it talks about this man who lives this happy and fulfilling life in his hometown near all of his family and is not in, in, you know, overwhelmed by terrible amounts of debt. And, and we laugh about it because what we're saying to them is no, no, that's not a good life. The good life is going off somewhere and then leaving and going somewhere else. And, and to try to get students to think about like what culturally is, is leading that narrative or what, where's that narrative coming from? And I, you know, it's, it's wrapped up in the American identity, I think, and and so maybe we're up against the behemoth, but it's still a good conversation to have with students to get them thinking. Yeah. Where does it come from? Why why are we overwhelmingly boomers? I mean, Barry, uh, like Jack was saying, associates it with the American dream and the American experience of, um, you know, people who came looking for a better life to a new place. And so we're sort of primed from culturally to, uh, to keep going elsewhere, looking for a new life. The frontier may be closed physically, but there's always some, you know, some frontier that's new to us. And it seems like mobility in the last hundred years in our nation has certainly 
has certainly changed that. I mean, there was a time in, in Shelby, Michigan, where I grew up when it was a it was a booming town. And it's because their old, old US 31 ran right through the heart of town. And that was the way you got up the West Coast in, in Michigan. And then they put in an expressway about three miles outside of town that bisected the country. And uh, now, essentially, there's no reason to stop in Shelby. And, and that you've seen sort of a, a slow decline, I think, over the last 80 years in that town from being a, a, a place where people would drive through and then could imagine living there, as my, my parents did, to a place that you know, doesn't, doesn't have a lot to offer. And, and I think that mobility is tied into our desire to consume, into our desire to, um, to have more. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could, I'm thinking of Flannery O'Connor or Walker Percy and, and the great uh, metaphor of the car in so many of their novels about you know, the car is the sort of locus of American identity because it represents freedom and the ability to get away at any time. I'm stuck on that expressway. I mean, I don't, I've never been to Michigan. I grew up, I was a kid in Detroit, I think for three years, but I, I don't remember being in Michigan anyway. So I don't, I don't know if it's true there or not, but the, the town I went to college in, in Georgia has much the same story that it used to be a place you went through on your way to Greenville from Atlanta. And then they built a, uh, they built a bypass and, and you no longer went through it and it just drives the town up. But, but so often when that happens, you're trading, very interesting and specific roads for very, uh, I don't know how to put it, no place roads, roads that look the same in every part of the country where you're not going through anything interesting, these controlled access highways. Yep. Do I, do I sound 70 years old? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, this is, you know, I mean, that's the, that's part of the narrative of Fort William is um, when the expressway comes in and makes it. Yep, close to, close to Hargrave. You've got Jaber who's getting rid of his car, which is get, gets him to Hargrave where he can sort of be away from accountability. And um, I mean, of course, you've got the movie Cars, which is, uh, you know, the deep cultural narrative of, of Radiator Springs. And, but I mean, I think that is that's an interesting sub narrative of American culture is the, the death of the small town. Now, we have something sort of opposite of that. We have uh, M60 that runs right through our town. And uh, so we have a lot of traffic that comes through here, but it's primarily freight, you know, it's, it's semis and it sort of makes it so this place can't have a downtown and it can't have a, uh, you know, sort of a, a centralized place where, where people gather. So um, the worst of both worlds, I the guess. worst of both worlds. <laughs> yeah. Spring Arbor has McDonald's and the university. Right. It's great. Well, congratulations. Our, our university <laughs> farm is now the McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you talk about that in the book that you yeah, used to have yeah. this. And four pizza places, I think. Yeah. So I I I'm 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 just thinking about I, I just keep thinking about place and, and how how exciting it was for me to move from I grew up in Metro Atlanta. In Metro Atlanta, I mean the suburbs of Atlanta exist once Atlanta starts expanding. So um even the ritziest suburbs have absolutely no character whatsoever. It's strip malls and these huge subdivisions. It's terrible. I was very surprised when I moved to Minneapolis because Minneapolis, the cities around Minneapolis, the, the suburbs, were all cities before Minneapolis started expanding. 
So I live in a first-ring suburb of Minneapolis, and uh, it, it's a real town. It has a downtown. It has its own identity separate from Minneapolis, even though I'm sure 60%, 70% of the people who live in Hopkins work in Minneapolis, and they take the bus or drive, or soon they'll take the, the light rail. So it, it's it's interesting to me how different places in the country do this very differently. And I, I would I would say that Minneapolis is more successful at this than Atlanta is. Yeah, and I guess they're probably uh, urban histories that, that result in the differences you just described. Yeah. Well, uh, what role does the imagination play in our learning to be responsible for the places we live? Um, all three of us are English professors, so I, I should ask more specifically, how can I use my English classes to teach people to love their homes? Uh, yeah. So one of, the, one of my favorite classes to teach here is Introduction to Literary Studies, and that's sort of our gateway course into the major to upper-level courses. And... A few years back, as a result, actually, of, of uh, reading uh, Barry, reading Frederick Buechner, um, Marilyn Robinson, I, I just sort of had a, an idea that I, I want to teach. Uh, yeah. So one of, the, one of my favorite classes to teach here is Introduction to Literary Studies. And that's sort of our gateway course into the major to upper-level courses. And I've never been asked to sort of stop and look around at the, the simple things in, in the world around them, in the place they're in. Uh, we take a walk outside and I, I ask them to find an object in nature and I ask them to write about it for 10 minutes, ask some questions about it, and then if they can, bring that thing back into class with them. That's sort of how we be, begin the semester and I ask them to start paying attention to the mundane things in their lives because I think that's also at the, the root of the problem is a desire to care about grand things and not small things. And it's oftentimes in those small things that we find beauty in it. And this ties directly into then one of the skills we, we teach our students, which is the, the craft of close reading and how to look very, very closely at a text and be able to make meaning out of it. And, uh, and I find that to just be, uh, it's, you know, we English professors and, and people who care about literature are always criticized for, having our heads in the clouds or not, not being involved in practical things. And, uh, and I think actually aesthetics can be very much tied to the practical. And, and this is an opportunity that I find in that class that is, for me, it's life-changing. And I think it's transformative for my students too. Yeah. And if I could just push that uh, a little bit further, maybe in the direction we take it uh, in the book, it, it's that those skills that Jack's talking about uh, teach students how to imagine, Imagine uh, the effects, I guess, or, of their knowledge and their actions so that we're actually more responsible uh, for what we do if we're imagining how uh, what we know and what we're doing fits into our context and our place. I think one of, the, one of the, the, the things for which we critique contemporary universities is, and this is not original to us by any means, um, is this sort of fragmenting and specialization of the university. I mean, Barry, Barry says um, the modern university is like a collection of, of locked off branches waving around rather than a unified thriving tree. So um, we think uh, literature is a, is a great opportunity to teach students how, how things fit together and then to ask those kinds of questions of whatever their specialized discipline might be. And we might be a little 
biased in this as you know, we were right. both, we were both trained in liberal arts institutions. Right. We teach at a liberal arts institution, but I think that we, you know, I don't think we, <laughs> we argue this in the book that, that the liberal arts as a way of forming the trunk of the tree, uh, is, is a very good way to help prepare students, their affections, their imaginations for seeing how everything's all of a, of a piece, you know, how it's all interconnected and it's not these lopped off branches, but there, there are connections here that are important. And that imagination being, um, being very much rooted in the place and rooted in tradition, uh, and rooted in a, some level of hierarchy. Uh, these are all, these are all necessary, uh, for, for imagination. Uh, Barry is pretty infamously a Luddite. He has a very famous essay, which you cite several times, called Why I'm Not Going to Buy a Computer. Is, is technology the problem here? And maybe this is the place we should complain about online education. <laughs> and the fact that we're conducting this interview over Skype. Right, right. I'm, I, do I contradict myself very well? Very well. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's, yes, but I don't want to be too simplistic about it. Um, one of, we don't talk about this in the book, but one of the stories that I've been sort of sitting with um, more recently by Barry uh, is called Dismemberment. It's one of his most recent stories, and he returns to um, uh, Andy Catlett, who's one of the characters, kind of an autobiographical character, who, who loses his right hand. Um, and, and, you know, Barry has two hands, so it's kind of odd that this autobiographical character would lose his, his right arm, right hand, in a farming accident. Um, but Barry talks about in the story how that loss reminds Andy, uh, and I think Barry also, of the ways in which we are all complicit in techno technological prostheses uh, to connect us to the world. And, and I think we just have to live with that sort of discomfort and awkwardness. So uh, all that to say, I think we have to – we should be able to critique technology and to say – uh, something is lost when we communicate with each other digitally and when we uh, sort of think disembodied in, in, in disembodied formats. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we can just um, lop off uh, and stop using all these technologies. I mean, Barry you know, doesn't use some, doesn't use a computer, but he's got solar panels on his farm. Uh, so I think we all have to sort of work out what kind of compromises we, we need to make uh, without making, as Barry says, compromise a, a virtue in that regard. And listen, one of the things I will always be a sort of like a, a crotchety old man about is the claim that we hear all the time on campus that on online education is the same. It, it's the same product we offer in the classroom. And I, I just, I simply do not believe that. <laughs> it, it is not. <laughs> there's, there's no way it could be. No, and, and, and the, the thing I will, I will continue, right? So, like, I'm a medievalist. Like, technology is a great thing. A pen, a quill, you know, a stylus is technology. And so to, to claim that technology isn't evil, it's, it's not. It's a tool. And, but, but it also is not a good in and of itself. And it's, it's not neutral. It's not a neutral. It's certainly not neutral. And... And so to claim that it can replace the experience that we have with students who come to our houses and, and, you know, when we have students over for dinner and for gatherings with our department, 
and we can have a connection with them in the classroom or in an event on campus like that can't be replaced and i don't it can't be replicated and i don't think it 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 should be and and so yeah you know what technology i use a computer every day of my life i have a smartphone i uh i think that there need to be limits with those things uh, but i i will argue there's no replacement for face-to-face -face interaction in the classroom yeah uh, we have uh our online program graduates with the uh with the brick and mortar program, which I think is very interesting because it seems to suggest that graduation at least is something you can't do adequately online. Right. Maybe, maybe for some of those students, it's their first time on your campus. I, I suspect it is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's strange because they have a, they have a student speaker as well. So we have, we have the, the student speaker from the, what we call the school of arts and sciences. And then the, the student speaker from the school of online studies. And it's very interesting because our, our school of online studies is largely for, uh, what we might call non-traditional students, people, people who are living in other parts of the country and are, you know, 30 plus years old and have jobs doing other things and want to go back and get a master's or whatever. And so they do, they do have a story and it's true that our regular program probably couldn't serve them, but no. still it's, it's, it's strange to have that combination at graduation. It is because why, why wouldn't it work online? Right. <laughs> You could all log in at the same time. You could all join the conversation and uh, the, the ceremony. But one of the things we try to, to talk, uh, one of the ways that we try to frame this when we talk about it with our administration or, or other, other uh, folks who, who are really behind online is that if, um, if online is the same and we're all, you know, it's, it's a MOOC. I think MOOCs have kind of passed, but, but if that's the future, then Spring Arbors and uh, Crown Colleges are going to lose, right? I mean, uh, there's no way that we're going to be able to compete with Liberty or whatever Ivy League wants, you know, imprimatur on on courses. So I think um, we're just, we, there's economic reasons that universities like ours should emphasize what makes our places and our communities unique. Uh, otherwise, we're going to. I think Patrick Deneen talks about this in terms of like Walmart, right? Um, all, you know, some big university is going to become the Walmart of online higher education, and then all the mom and pop universities are going to go out of business. So I think there's economic ways of thinking about it as well as quality ways of thinking about it. And very at the end of that that uh, essay about not owning a computer, right. he you know he says it, in response to one of the letters. Um, and it might be the gentleman from Battle Creek, which is just down the road from us, which is great. But uh, um, he says, you know, if if uh, I think it's his final point that if, um, you know, owning a computer is all the rave and what everyone else is doing, isn't it a more novel thing to not own a computer? So am I not in some ways at, at the uh, sort of the forefront of this? And I and I think that um, our response as many institutions is to try to chase after like the Liberty universities, you know, who have 30,000 online students or whatever ridiculous number that they have. Um, but it seems to me that that isn't a more novel idea not to do that. And uh, one of the ways I've tried to frame this in, in, in meetings is, is to say, you know, what, what do we have as an institution that no, not a single other institution in the world has? When, and that's our place. There is no other Spring Arbor University in Spring Arbor, Michigan. And, and so to me, 
it seems like a novel idea would be to look around you and say, what, you know, Barry has this, in, he says this in, in a talk and in an essay, uh, you don't walk up to a farm and, and say from it, you know, this is what I want from you. You walk up to it and you say, what do you need? And I think if more institutions looked at their communities and said, what do you need? Maybe the institution would, the, the shape of the institution would change to fit its place um, rather than the other way around, rather than our institution trying to become sort of a, a Liberty University about 20 years too late. Um, what is it that we can do? Uh, and I think that begins with where we're at. You make a, a really strong case here for the value of the liberal arts, but you also say we have to combine them with the practical arts, with manual labor, more or less. I don't even like to let sunshine into my office. What does manual labor have to teach me? Well, I mean, we so we we looked at you know sort of the origins of of the modern university, and and you go back to someone like Hugh Saint Victor, who is is training people in the liberal arts, sort of the classical model of the liberal arts, but he's, he's training these people for um, civic work, for work in the world, not in an academy, because it's not really an academy. And and there are the mechanical arts and the practical arts, and, it, and I think that it's, uh, you know, it's just, it's so essential to have that, because a tendency is toward abstraction, to have the intellectual work tied to um tied to the physical work and to the, the work of the world. Jeff can say more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, part of, part of it, too, the way that we uh, got, arrived here through Barry, because Barry doesn't draw on Hugh of St. Victor, uh, although I think he would, be, um, he would be happy to do so. But uh, it's Barry's, I mean, I guess to just go, so Barry grows up in the South. Uh, he's, you know, the the descendant of slave owners. He's the inheritor of this ugly racial wound in America. And one of the ways that he talks about that wound is the sort of division between head and body. And that's, uh, you know, if the African-American slaves are working the land, then the white owners aren't. And uh, that hurts both parties so that uh, the land is cared for poorly because um, the people who are working it have no reason to care for it well. And the people who want to care for it well aren't out there looking at it, you know. So he, he thinks that when you stop working with your body, uh, the, you, you make other people into slaves um, and, and then both, both groups suffer. So I think there's many ways in our economy, even though we don't have uh, racial formalized slavery anymore, uh, there are many ways in our – there are many facets of our economy still that suffer that sort of division between – the prestigious white collar work and the menial uh, blue collar labor. And so, you know, I know it's hard, it's hard to imagine how the university might um, push students to, to work with their bodies and to make their knowledge accountable to their physical places. But we try to offer some suggestions in that chapter uh, along those lines. And at least um, Think about ways to frame the classroom so that students are aware of the real, practical, physical consequences of their ideas, and and that they're just sort of dynamic, moving back and forth between the physical and the mental. We're we're pretty big fans too of the the work consortium schools like the College of the Ozarks and and Berea. 
And, it, you know, if you look at those institutions, you know, they have they have large endowments, but um, they serve their communities and they're highly sought after. Um, their the sort of requirements for admission are are outstanding, which I think says, you know, that, that people aren't afraid to work and get their hands dirty if it if it means they can get a, a you know, a, a world class education. And this might not be popular to say, but I, I look at um uh, students at institutions that not just like our state institutions. And one of the things you hear faculty saying is that there are, are more and more students with mental health uh, concerns and issues than, than they remember seeing any time before. And I, I thought a lot about this and wondered, you know, what would it be like if, if we weren't on screens all day long? Uh, what would it look like if we were tired enough at night from working in addition to our academic work? that we could fall asleep. Um, would this work actually in some ways address um, a lot of the, the mental health issues that we have on, on campuses? And uh, I, you know, as a person who worked all the way through college, manual labor jobs uh, to pay for my education, I, I know that there is a, there's a value in that, um, in, in being tired and knowing that there's work beyond the academic work in this world. It seems like that wouldn't be a hard study to run. You just have to look at the uh, the work consortium colleges and see what their mental health yeah. situation is. Yeah. Research topic for listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Since you're not going to do it. The second half of your book is an exploration of four words that aren't terribly popular anymore. Uh, I want to go through those one by one. So we'll start with tradition. We live in a society that I suspect thinks of itself as very non-traditional. Progress and disruption are more or less God terms in 21st century America. What are we losing by not paying attention to our ancestors? I mean, we, part of our argument here is that uh, we are formed by tradition whether we want to be or not. So by pretending to be forward-thinking and innovative, we're just being formed in ways that we're not uh, always conscious of. I mean, Barry, Barry talks about his Christianity in, in terms of along these lines. He says something like, um, it, you know, I could, I could turn away from my Christian tradition that I was raised in, um, but that would probably only bind me more tightly to a reduced version of it. Uh, so, so in many ways, um, we're just saying, hey, and this, you know, you can make this point, like Gadamer makes this point in hermeneutics. Um, so there's a lot of ways of, of talking about this, but our, our contention, I guess, is that we should be grateful for the gifts that we have received from those who have gone before us. And that doesn't mean that we accept them blindly or uh, uncritically, but it does mean that we think about the historical context that we and our uh, academic subjects uh, come from and uh, work to understand ourselves within that rather than pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah. And I guess maybe another point would be uh, we live in a uh, sort of technological context that devalues memory, right? You can access all kinds of information. So our stu my, my students don't have to memorize things or they think they don't. Um, but what I tell my students is if you don't have uh, the ideas or the terms or the, uh, so the, the thoughts in your mind, you can't work with them. You can't think with them. So, so many students uh, come to us with um, unfurnished 
minds. And I think one of our jobs is to furnish their minds uh, with wisdom and with, uh, you know, important ideas so they can think with them. You know, so like we, we make our students memorize poetry. Uh, we make our students memorize terms um, so that they have something to think with. And I think uh, that's one of the dangers, going back to the technology topic, one of the dangers with Google or Siri is it encourages uh, a sort of amnesia because uh, we're not worried about forgetting things because it's out there somewhere. We, um, we talk about the importance of, of memorization and, and it's becoming increasingly rarer to find a student who has memorized really anything. I think that's fair to say, right? Yeah. Our students haven't often memorized much and and I think, you know, the, this is only in parts of the K-12 K system. Um, and I, I think of the Latin aphorism, uh, repetitio est mater memoriae, the repetition is the mother of memory. And, and there, I think, I, you know, I think this is in some ways tied to that mundane again. It's not particularly exciting to practice repetition. It's not particularly exciting to um, work on recalling things uh, from from memory, especially when it's at our uh, at our fingertips. And part of what we're trying to say to students is, again, technology is a tool. Um, it does have a value in some ways in that it's it's pushing you to be people who don't store up sort of treasures in your in in your mind. And to use an Augustinian image. <laughs> yes, right, right. Um, and and if, I, th I think if there's one thing you know we we can we can do early on with our students is to encourage them, and most of us actually in our department will require students to do a um, a memorization of fifteen lines of poetry or something like that um, for part of a part of a grade, and they have to come and recite it to us um, because I think it's you know it, it's essential and it's something we don't we don't do enough of. They react violently to being asked to memorize poems, right? My students, yeah, do. very much oh, so, for sure, yeah. I always but tell you, them if you if if they memorize it, they'll be able to analyze it much better. They'll know I, I think, it. Yeah, they have to when they write a poetry for me. They have to memorize the poem they're analyzing. And I say that it's a it's a sort of um, symbiotic relationship here. As you memorize it, your analysis will improve, and as you analyze it and, and give a reading of it, that will help you remember it. So it's a it's a good process. Well, the next term you explore is hierarchy. I don't know that tradition is necessarily a devil term in contemporary society, but no doubt hierarchy is. It's very, very rare to find someone who praises hierarchy. What what makes it so important? Michael, you're going to make nobody buy our book. <laughs> you know, I was just listening to an interview with Noam Chomsky this morning, and he was railing against noblesse oblige, basically. And I thought, well, this is going to uh, it's going to be different from what I'm talking about this afternoon. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's dive into some pseudo-Dionysius here and right. talk about the celestial hierarchy yeah. in order to... I mean, there's a lot of ways we go about it. We, we start off talking about Heidegger, you know, speaking of fashionable philosophers, but uh, Heidegger's claim that thinking is thinki thinking, uh, that you cannot think without first being grateful. Um, and, and part of this, again, is you can think about in terms of tradition, right, being thankful for those who have gone before. But also just, you know, what if our root posture... Toward hierarchy or one of gratitude 
rather than what I think is more common for, for contemporary America, uh, one of sort of resentment or, or uh, rebellion. Uh, and again, like with tradition, that doesn't mean that you have to unthinkingly submit to everything that's over you, uh, but it's to recognize that hierarchy is an innate good that certainly can be corrupted, um, but that means it should be corrected, not, uh, not thrown off. So, um, you know, we talk about the need, and part of this comes back to limits, right, uh, which of course is also not a very popular term in our culture, but the need to, um, to not try to think your way out of limits and, and violate all limits, but to respect limits that are inherent and good and, and then be grateful for those and uh, seek to work creatively within them. So, I mean, we get that this is kind of countercultural, but uh, we're trying to imagine what a the, the kinds of virtues that a placed university would have to practice. And I think right up there at the top is is gratitude for your place and for um, for the sources on, that your life depends on, whether they be biological sources or, you know, for us at a Christian university, also theological sources, of course. That term limit and limits, the idea of limits is, I think, one that's central to Barry's writing in it. And it is, Jeff said, it's not popular. It's, it's really not. And when we talk with our students about that, yeah. they, they push back. Initially, they push back. And, and then when you talk, I mean, a very quick way to get them to understand that we all live under limits is, is to talk about the one limit we all share, which is uh, death. Yep. For and, now. Uh, for, for now. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, but it is, it's, it's tied directly into that American idea of uh, freedom, which we try to talk about in, in the book in terms of, of, you know, the liberal arts, they free us um, in a way that, that is maybe different than students think of when they think of American freedom, which we kind of understand today to be, I can live my life the way I want to live it. And you can't tell me how to live it. Um, but, but instead freedom to choose to limit yourself, freedom to be limited and to live within limits. Most people, uh, and I'll use an example from my, my personal life. Um, recently I, my, my son's 11, um, my oldest is 11 and he, uh, we ended up taking a, a, a phone away from him. He, we are not those parents. It didn't have a, a phone plan or anything on it, but he listened to music on it, but he was also playing games on it. And so, uh, we, we found out he was playing these games late at night when he was supposed to be in bed. And when I took it away from him, he, it, I mean, it sounds odd. Like my, my son is not uh, perfect. He's an amazing young man, but he was, he was thankful. He, would, he had gratitude for me taking it away from him, and I was actually sort of shocked. And he said something that will always stick with me. He said, I'm really glad you took that away from me because I just didn't have the self-control to, uh, to deal with it. And yes, maybe he sounds a little precocious, but uh, he's a very wise uh, young man already. And it, and it just struck me that this is what our students say to us, too. They don't want uh, a life without limits. They need to feel like there's some shape or form or boundary to things. And obviously, I mean, I think we sort of alluded to people who think we can uh, think our way beyond the limit of death, but so much of the damage, uh, whether it be ecological damage or uh, cultural damage or war in our, in our world comes from people who think that they can just violate limits. Uh, so 
the rest of us suffer when people are not grateful for the good limits of life. Your next book, you'll have to argue in favor of constraint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sales go up through the roof. That's right. When Marx calls religion the opiate of the masses, he's pointing out that the hierarchy it sets up blinds people to their immediate needs, right? So it says, don't worry about what you're suffering now. There's going to be an afterlife in which everything is made right. To what extent do gratitude and hierarchy lead us to that kind of quietism? I mean, I yeah. I think on the one hand, it certainly can. But I also think that uh, gratitude can be a sort of foundation for um, work that participates in the good that we receive. So, um, and, and this is, you know, I'm thinking, I'm just working on a paper right now about um, Barry's eschatology and the fact, you know, that, that he's, what he views about heaven and the sort of future hope and how for Barry that hope leads to good work now, whereas for Jackson, my congressman, Apparently, uh, it leads him to think that, that climate change doesn't matter because God can take care of, of the earth or whatever. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, Tim Wahlberg. Thanks, Tim Wahlberg. But um, so, I mean, it's tricky because the same, what looks like the same theological doctrine can have what I think are two opposite effects. And so a lot of it is in how we frame uh, what we're grateful for and what kind of obligations, I guess, that gratitude entails in us. So... Certainly in, in debased forms, um, it can lead to that kind of quietism. But I think uh, Barry frames it in ways that, that lead to um, humble but uh, practical work and uh, doing, doing good where you are. There's a, I think there's a lot of healing that has to happen for our students in, in relationship to the places they, they come from. And... We talk in, in that chapter on hierarchy about advising students to go home. And, and I think I would, I would add to that, not just to go home, but to reimagine the places, not uh, out of their, their criticism and disdain for it. And, and I'm, I'm speaking about my own sort of personal process as well of having to learn to be grateful for Shelby and not angry at it for uh, maybe uh, not shaping me or preparing me for the world at large. Uh, and, and I think working with them to say, you know, can you imagine the goodness that exists in that place you came from, despite the things you're frustrated about it? Uh, I think that is a, that's a virtue of, of, of sort of gratitude that is, um, that is really important. And I'm not, I'm not sure students are getting that. The gratitude doesn't mean just blind acceptance. Right, right, right. And in fact, you know, one of the, if you value those things, then you're going to care for them, which might entail working against those forces that are um, exploiting them. So it's, yeah, it, we try to frame it in ways that aren't, well, just throw up your hands and be, be happy. Woohoo. The word uh, geography is not unpopular in the sense that people are against it, but I don't think most people think about it too much. Uh, why, why is it essential to your vision of higher education, geography? Uh, because we all live in one. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like you said, most people don't think about it. I mean, uh, we've talked about this already some, but universities are really oriented around distant sources of approval. I mean, you know, this book, right, uh, was published by a university press outside of Michigan, and uh, it's being read by people 
outside of our place. So anytime you participate in uh, the sort of broader academic conversation, you're engaging with people from distant places, which is great. But if that's where you, um, if that's the sole standard, I guess, uh, for the work that you do, then you're going to be forgetful of uh, the effects that your your knowledge or your thinking might have on your local community. So the university is set up to reward professors and students who do work that's recognized in the sort of cosmopolitan centers. And um, we're suggesting that a better standard or, or a an equally important standard is the effect of your life and your ideas on the place that you live. So what, what does it look like to be faithful to uh, your local place? Is that why you reference your own students so much in the book? Yeah, I, I, mean, I think so. And, and it was kind of cool. One, This was not plan necessarily but well it was not planned by us our department chair put it on but um when the book came out this spring she organized uh an event that a lot of our students came to and we got to uh to talk with them about our our book and that was really really cool actually um because they asked good questions and uh they they came because they care about us you know and we wrote the book because we care about them so that was a a rewarding um, you know, wasn't really prestigious. I'm not going to put it on my CV, but it's in some ways the most important uh, audience for our ideas, even if they never read the book. Right? They're, they're, it was our students we had in mind when we wrestled with these ideas. I mean, we required them to come to this talk and to buy know, our book and to buy the book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the, you know, the, I, I can't imagine or think about or write about education without imagining and thinking about my students and and our students come from very similar places in some ways in Michigan the majority of them are from Michigan or the Midwest region here and uh, a lot of them I I see a similar experience of my own in in them and so that allows me to connect with them to understand uh to understand some of those struggles. Um, but you know, we, we do understand there's also a danger in, uh, the parochialism that, that, uh, we see in small towns. I mean, that's, that's often the thing that pushes young people away from the towns they come from, especially if they're smaller communities is that sort of very insular way of seeing the world. And when they get outside of that, they realize, Oh, you know, not everyone thinks this one way. And, and so there, you know, it's a real challenge to help students understand that it's both okay to expand your knowledge and to care for that place. And, and to use that knowledge that um, is cosmopolitan or abstract in the service of a particular place. And we think the university, in terms of what, what that means, you know, how geography connects to the life of the university— uh, we argue that, you know, having uh, rooted faculty and administrators, people who are committed to a place that the university is located, that's Im- important that you also maybe you pursue a local curriculum. And so what does it look like for you to offer classes, not just in maybe Michigan history, but local Michigan history? You know, Jackson, Michigan is is touted as the birthplace of the Republican Party. and And so that's seven miles down the road. What does it mean for us to offer courses at, you know, Jackson prison system? Was it the first 
state prison in Michigan. Yeah. Uh, old, old history with, with the prison system here yeah. as well. So we think that there's a lot of disciplines that can find ways to localize their curriculum, I guess. Even if it's not, it doesn't mean that you don't teach, you know, I teach Dante and uh, Homer and Milton. These guys aren't really local, but uh, we try to teach them in a way that applies their their concerns and their stories to this place and to our students' lives. So it's that sort of uh, unity, I guess, between the place and these more uh, distant ideas. And you try to balance it out with some Ted Nugent, right? Yeah, definitely. He's known as the Nuge around here. <laughs> You end, you end with a chapter on community, which is probably a word most people think of themselves as being in favor of, but I think there's a pretty good case to be made that the average American isn't really part of any meaningful communities at all. Do you, do you guys care to make that case? My case? <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you. I think uh, our, our communities are in general quite diseased, um, in large part because uh, we resent the responsibilities that belonging to each other uh, will entail. So, um, yeah, I think if if uh, individuals at universities and institutions were to practice a placed education, that would go a long way toward at least beginning to heal um, our communities, but it's not going to be any sort of panacea. We've... Uh served on the same committee the last few years and and have gone through general education revisions at our institution. And one of the things we've done is to reshape a series of courses that we had uh, that were were called our core courses, and, and, and we're now calling them Community of Learners courses, which is part of our university's concept slash mission statement. Uh, but it's, it's because what we have at this institution is really a genuine sense of community among, among faculty and staff. And, and I think maybe we take it for granted sometimes when uh, when you realize you've got a whole group of people who love each other and work together, who help each other on projects. Jeff just helped me pour a concrete slab along with uh, two other colleagues, and uh, for Jack's helping me this Saturday pour some more concrete. That's right. So we you know we exchange labor. labor. That's right. And, Are you uh, just paving the whole county? <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Uh, Pave paradise. Put so parking lot. So. We have sort of micro communities here at the institution. Uh, Jeff is is in Jackson in a in a neighborhood, and and they're involved in the lives of their neighbors. And uh, we're here in Spring Arbor in a neighborhood. And you know, I had a neighbor down today giving me advice on the on the uh, writing shed I'm building on that slab we poured. And and you know, I think I think there are opportunities to have that community in in smaller ways. I think though, because we don't depend upon people so much to for our subsistence any longer. Uh, my wife and I were just lamenting that this, this last weekend, how, how we're sort of old souls in that way. We wish we could uh, have to depend more on our neighbors for things because there's a real vulnerability there and humility when, when you need help. And, uh, and, and I think we've, we've walled ourselves off enough in communities that um, that's harder and harder to do today. And, and so often, I think the knowledge that universities try to teach their students uh, is knowledge that they can make money from and therefore not be dependent on um, other people, right? Uh, it would be, you know, the goal of university education is so you can make it on your own. And uh, 
we're trying to flip that and say, what if the goal of the university education is so that you need your neighbors and you need each other and you can use what you know to help your neighbors, to be hospitable and extend that love to your neighbors rather than using your knowledge to be independent and uh, self-sufficient. One of the, one of the um, sort of perspectives that I feel like I, I bring to the life of a professor is having grown up in a small farming community and having worked on a farm as a, as a young, young man, when the election, the, the political cycle that we've been through here, um, when it was probably about four or five months before the election, I said to a group of my professor friends, I think Donald Trump is going to be our next president. And, and they laughed at me. And, uh, and well, I don't know if they laughed at me, but they said, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And I think there, there is a disconnect between universities, which have become communities under themselves in many ways, and rural communities, which are often serving these institutions by sending their people there. And I think that the political atmosphere in our, our nation is, is reflecting that. I mean, you've got books like Hillbilly Elegy and uh, White Trash and, you know, academics trying to understand these communities. And, and I think it's interesting because it's like they, they want to understand these rare, rare creatures. It's like and some anthropological it investigation. Yeah. And, and I want to say, like, you know how you could do that, maybe live there for a while and talk to these people and and understand that, yes, while the maybe the veneer is is unpolished, that they're they're not evil people and uh, that maybe there's there's something to be done about to understand why they feel so disenfranchised and, and certainly calling them uneducated, uh, rubes or whatever you want to call them. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe you should go and work with them for a day. Maybe you should go and talk with them about the town they, they knew, uh, over the last 50 years that has now disintegrated before their eyes seemingly, um, because of no fault of their own. And, and that's where I think, uh, as Jeff said, we have these diseased communities. I think it's because, uh, we, in, in oftentimes, at least in higher education, the university doesn't doesn't know how to connect to the community around it. Yeah. Well, I've been steering the conversation so far, but in the spirit of hospitality here on Christian Humanist Profiles, we like to give our guests the, the final word. What hasn't been said that you'd like our listeners to hear? Well, I mean... Sounds like all three of us are kind of old fogies. So I guess I would like to end on a word of hope. Um, and we, you know, we're not at all optimistic about the future of higher education. Barry says that optimism depends on uh, expectations and predictions, and I don't think there's any uh, any encouraging statistics uh, that show, you know, institutions of higher education serving their places. But there's a lot of good people. Um, both, both administrators and faculty and staff and students uh, at these places uh, in pockets on the margins of, of all these institutions um, who want to learn and who want to use their knowledge to serve the health of their places. And I think wherever that kind of learning and education and work is going on, uh, that's the ground for, for hope. So on the one hand, um, we do critique the university on the other hand, we love working at one, and uh, I think our work gives us hope and encouragement. Um, so I think while universities are diseased places, there's there's also a lot of opportunity there to do good work. And I would add to that that 
we have the unique opportunity at a university to have students for uh, four years of their lives to work through complicated texts with them, to sit down with them as unofficial counselors and, and hear their troubles and their, their, their questions about their faith. Um, we, we have such a unique job and it is uh, one that I, I absolutely love. And, and to see our students, as Jeff said, uh, sort of be hopeful about the world, they, uh, they help me be hopeful about things. They're not, they're not native pessimists, maybe like we are. Uh, and they, they, bring a, they bring a hope that is, is deeply encouraging. And, and, you know, it reminds me that there are a lot of things to be thankful about in this world. And, and there are a lot of opportunities. And to see our students leave here and take these things we talk about in the classroom that, you know, you know this, it, that at times when you talk about something, you think, boy, did this have any effect on anyone or, you know, and students will come back and say, oh, when you said this in class and I think, well, I thought you were daydreaming. How did this, you know, to see that there's a real transformation happening in our students' lives that, you know, this, if we were doing this for a paycheck, uh, we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have written this book. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's hopeful. I think our students are the hope. Well, I've been talking with Jack Baker and Jeff Bilbro about their book, Wendellberry in Higher Education. It's out now from University of Kentucky Press. There'll be a link to purchase that at our website, which is christianhumanist.org. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Thanks for listening.